Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. In today's episode of Show Cause, we examine a number of international news items that have been receiving a lot of attention in the past few weeks. We're joined by our very own Professor Ronnie Gibson, a resident international law expert and all-around Memphis law favorite. At this point, he might be Show Cause's most frequent guest, with this being his third appearance on the program. So, this was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, with us touching on topics from the environmental uproar around Japan's release of treated water from the now-defunct Fukushima nuclear power plant, to the recent plane crash in Russia that claimed the life of Wagner Military Force General Yevgeny Prigozhin. The conversation then veers sharply into military coup attempts, specifically that of the recent one in the African nation of Niger, and how the international community's reaction to that coup differs sharply to the violent one that was undertaken in Myanmar in 2021. The sanctions, reactions, and fallout from both are examined by Professor Gibson, and we get an idea of why all of these items bear watching, even if they seem unrelated at first glance. Quick hint. China is a through line for several of these topics, but you'll learn more about that yourself as you listen to the episode. So, please enjoy this trip around the world with Show Cause and Professor Gibson. This is Show Cause. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Show Cause. Today, we are joined by a, uh, a returning guest and Professor Ronnie Gibson from here at Memphis Law. And we are going to touch on a wide variety of international news items. There's been a lot going on across the world, and we felt that uh, there were some really interesting topics that that we could cover for our listeners to kind of bring them up to speed on a number of different topics. We're we're going to touch on uh, three or four primary items that Professor Gibson is going to lend some interesting expertise and updates on. We'll. We're going to touch on the uh, the recent uh, airplane crash in Russia involving um, the uh, General Prigozhin. Is that correct, Professor Gibbs? And um, how that is playing out in Russia. We're going to touch on um, the recent coup in Niger in Africa and how that relates to uh, uh, coup in Myanmar several years ago and the international community's responses to both and how those are playing out. And finally, we'll kind of go over a recent environmental uh, matter in Japan dealing with the Fukushima nuclear disaster from several years ago in 2011 and the recent release of some uh, treated radioactive water back into the Pacific Ocean and how that is playing out in Japan and uh, neighboring uh, neighboring nations in the Pacific Ocean and and the surrounding area. So... First, this is a lot of ground to cover, Professor Gibson. Thanks for coming on and kind of giving us the the rundown of everything. I wanted to start with the the Prigozhin airplane crash and exactly what happened there. Although I don't think anybody knows exactly what happened there, and but how that how that relates to uh, matters in Russia, how that frees up uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, his efforts in staying in power and doing what he wants to do in Russia. Yeah. So first, uh, thanks, Ryan, for having me back on the Show Cause podcast. It's always great to be here. Um, in direct answer to your question, there's actually two sides to this coin um, that relate to my scholarship. Um, I focus on international law and aviation law. And so from the aviation law standpoint, we're not going to know what actually happened and what caused the crash probably for about 18 to 24 months because it takes time for the investigative agency to get in there and run a proper investigation uh, and and issue a report. So it's it's way too early to speculate uh, as to what actually happened that that caused the crash. So uh, anything that you're hearing out there about what actually happened and you know this was definitely the cause, that's all speculation. So we have to put that aside and and wait for the regulatory and investigative agency to do their inspection and investigation and wait for that official report now who would who is the the 
the, uh, I guess the accredited aviation uh, organization that would make that definitive call. Cause I did see that the, and obviously this would be suspect, but I did see that there was a Russian uh, aviation, I guess, I don't know the term for it, but um, safety and, an aviation related uh, organization that said this was not due to mechanical or pilot error type things uh, or did or some, that came out of somewhere I, I saw. Um, yeah. And I, and I haven't seen that, but because this accident happened on a flight going from Moscow to St. Petersburg, it's a domestic mm-hmm. flight. So okay. it would be the Russian aviation agency that would step in and do the investigation and issue the report. Okay. Uh, the the Russian agency that would be akin to the United States National Transportation Safety Board. It would be the okay. same. Uh, so they'd be responsible for conducting that investigation. Um, now, so the other side, we look at this from the international law aspect, and we we ask the question: Well, you know, how does this affect um, you know Russia, Ukraine, and and Putin's position? So mm-hmm. that's a that's a big complicated ball of wax. Um, and as, as most people know that have been watching this situation, Yevgeny Prigozhin was the head of the Wagner military group. Um, and you have to roll back this timeline to uh, the middle of June, around the 23rd, 24th of June of this year, where he led a, mu- a mutiny against mm-hmm. Putin and the Russian defense minister over the way they were waging war against Ukraine. Uh, and he started a march on Moscow with his you know, right. more than 10,000 troops in the Wagner group. Uh, and um, the the president of uh, Belarus, uh, Lukashenko, you know, stepped in and negotiated and mediated a resolution, uh, which stopped the mutiny, uh, and then offered um, um, Prigozhin a safe haven there in Belarus. Uh, so the, the situation was diffused and um, Putin then essentially forgave him. Um, they welcome Russia, welcomed the um, Wagner Group soldiers into the Russian army, and um, you know, Prigozhin was forgiven, and and all was good. And mm-hmm. from that point forward, um, where Prigozhin actually was, it, it was it then became an international game of where's Waldo. Um, <laughs> It, it really did. So on this, it, it's like if we if you saw him, it was sort of a timestamp. So on six July, Prigozhin was found. He, he was no longer in Belarus. His location mm-hmm. was unknown, but his palace in Saint Petersburg was raided by Russian security services. And you know they found gold, they found wigs and disguises, and there's photos. Um, you know, in, in news stories about that. And then on the 19th of July, uh, Prigozhin was photographed back in Belarus. Uh, and he was supposedly exhibiting loyalty in the fight against Ukraine. So, you know, by that time, he was essentially walking the walk uh, and, and being loyal to um, Russia and, and Putin in the fight against the Ukraine. And then as late as uh, the 22nd of August, there were videos of Yevgeny Prigozhin in Africa, supposedly supporting the Russian efforts uh, to make the continent free by tackling terrorist groups and leading the Wagner group. Um, he was making speeches on behalf of Mali and the Central African Republic. And then a day later, on the 23rd of August, you know, he was killed in a plane crash outside of Moscow uh, on a flight heading to St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of the timeline from the, the the mutiny on the 23rd of June up until a month later. Well, not a month later, two months later, uh, to when he was killed in the plane crash. And when you take a step back and you, you, you look at that, um, it's like, well, you, you know, there's a whole lot of speculation and skepticism about what was going on. Um, and um, almost immediately, Putin. Putin came out and said, well, you know, I had nothing to do with it. This this wasn't a revenge killing. It wasn't retaliation. Um, but but there's just mm-hmm. a lot going on, a lot of uh, talk out there about how, how Putin was never going to let uh, that betrayal go unpunished. Right. Um, 
you know, there's, and we see a lot of historical parallels with the way Stalin handled that type of betrayal during his days. So um, it's, it's just not that big of a surprise to yeah. see uh, the head of the Wagner group uh, die in such a short time after the attempted coup and mo- um, mutiny there at the uh, latter part of June. But so from an international law standpoint, you know, we've got this um, war going on between Russia and the Ukraine. And what what that mutiny represented, it represented a real question against the the policy of Russia of whether or not that war was even legitimate. Uh, And it was an internal question. It wasn't mm-hmm. an external question coming from neighboring states or the international community. That that represented a strong domestic challenge to Putin's authority. And so that's why, you know, this sort of snuffing out of this biggest domestic challenge um, is so significant. Now, running throughout the news um, right now, you what what we're also seeing is we're seeing um, reports that, well, Despite the elimination of um, Prigozhin, there's a lot of talk that Putin may still be in trouble with, with right. um, you know, other domestic challenges to um, his leadership uh, and the continuing waging of this war against Ukraine. Um, does this does the elimination of Prigozhin does does that hurt Russia's you know military numbers and and in the in the war does the, does does Putin lose that entire, had he already lost the Wagner military force that was, you know, on their side before the, the, that attempted overthrow? Um, or is it, is he playing it more of a, the loss of that is outweighed by the silencing of other potential critics and challengers within their internal structure? Well, that, be, that is a very good question because, uh, what now has to happen is someone has to step into that vacuum that's been right. left by um, the death of Prigozhin. And uh, so those folks that were very, very loyal to him are going to be looking for a new leader. And yes. is that new leader going to be allied with, with Putin right. or are right. they going to be further uh, distant from him mm-hmm. and even more antagonistic? Um, and so has uh, this created, you know, more of a monster? Yeah. Um, or are they, you know, are these uh, 10,000 uh, Wagner trained soldiers, uh, sorry, the soldiers in the Wagner group, mm-hmm. uh, even going to be even more antagonistic and sort of rebellious? Um, and and the, another question that arises, where are they? Right. You know, because the talk was that they'd be uh, the promise was that they'd be assumed within the Russian military. Well, have they been deployed in Africa? Because that's Mm -hmm. where we last saw Prigozhin. Are they there fighting, uh, you know, against terrorist groups or are they on the front lines fighting against Ukraine? Um, We don't know is the answer, but it, it seems to be a very dangerous situation from that aspect. Right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, like you said, no one was really surprised by it. Um, but I guess we'll just kind of, we'll keep an eye on it. It's it's interesting that you talk about um, their uh, the Wagner groups and Prigozhin's time in in Africa and trying to quell some things that are going on there. Because the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about was um, the the recent coup in uh, in Niger and. I'm curious now. I didn't really know that there was a lot of Russian involvement in that region until you said that. So um, I think, did you want to, did you want to weigh in a little bit there before I got into any more specific questions? You know, I, I, I do. One more thing about before we move on from uh, the Prigozhin mm-hmm. and, and Russian issue is that um, there's another player here that's paying very close attention to how Russia is handling this uh it's war with the ukraine and that's Mm. china oh they they're they are a through line through all of these topics they they absolutely are and uh one of the one of the main reasons why russia is observing how this war with uh ukraine is going is because um they are gauging international reaction 
Mm -hmm. Um, because in the back of their mind or maybe in the forefront of their mind, they are contemplating, well, what would happen if we launched an invasion of Taiwan? What would be the international community's reaction? And so if you take a step back and look, once Russia invaded the Ukraine, um, they got $200 million in USAID, 101 Ukraine did. Ukraine got $101 million in aid from Finland. Germany pledged $3 billion in aid in the form of tanks, personnel carriers, and drones. And they recently just got uh, F-16 fighters from Netherlands and Denmark. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And that's that's from, you know, a country on the doorstep of Russia. So that type of, you know, financial aid and military hardware uh, has to make China think, hmm, yeah. Uh, Should yeah. I? Yeah. And overt aid, not just, right. ba- you know, not just something, you know, squeezed through a backroom deal. You know, they're on they're up front and and everyone knows the aid that they're giving. So it's not like I think that's a statement in and of itself as well. Right. Like China knows all of the players that are coming out in full full view and full support. And longtime listeners of this podcast will probably remember you talking about this probably two years ago. I guess it was about two about two years yeah. ago, about the or a year ago with then this war with the Ukraine started. You we had you on and you talked about um some recent scholarship that you had just done about, hey, watch out. Uh China is observing this war to see if they can get away with uh whatever they want to do in Taiwan. Um, so you know, that continues to play out, like you said. It and and it does. And um I I I I want to say that I have been vindicated. I'll, I'll use that <laughs> word vindicated in my in my viewpoint there, because the European Commission on Foreign Relations issued a, about a 15 page report in July of 2023. And this is one of the observations that is, is running through the port, r- report. It says the United States does not want war with a nuclear superpower. Right. And they said, OK. So in the war with Russia and Ukraine, they essentially are empowering others. They are empowering Ukraine to defend itself. Notice the United States hasn't sent in any troops, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're using a lot of other nations to help Ukraine defend itself. So the lesson there for China is the United States would pretty much do the same thing if Taiwan were invaded. Mm-hmm. And so if if that's the play in the playbook, then the United States would set that up in advance. Okay, well, are they doing that? Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, through Australia, Japan, South Korea, and the other players throughout Asia. United States doesn't want a war with a nuclear superpower, in that case, China. So we would arm others to help the Taiwan defend itself. Right, so, right, right. Interesting. It's, all there. it's Yeah, full circle. Full circle, it's all there. Anyway, so... Niger on to, yeah which you know um you know i guess the japan and the japan is the outline topic here that is not related to a coup um but on to, on to another uh coup related topic this one a successful coup in niger um i guess several weeks ago um late july the military and uh head of niger's pre- presidential guard declared himself head of state after the military seized power um Economic community of West African states uh, demanded the immediate release and reinstatement of the elected president in a, a, a emergency meeting in late July, and the military let that deadline pass without any action on their part. And um, I guess more recent news uh, that came after that was that the U.S. and France threatened to cut ties with Niger as a result of the coup and result of uh, their inaction, and um, neighboring countries threatened to go to war. And um, I think it set up a series of questions that that we can go over. And, you know, one, what what conditions led to the coup and uh, that economic community of West African states? Uh, I guess they're uh, ECOWAS. Is that is that what is that their, their acronym? Um, what can what, what can it do to stop a coup? Um, and then I'll let you go into kind of I'd like to hear, like, why is the stability of that country is so important, particularly to the U.S., France, and Europe. Yeah, there's and uh, 
another very complicated ball of wax with right. with those three questions. Um, but let's go into uh, what led to the coup. And um, I went through and I I found an interview on um, the news site France Twenty Four, mm-hmm. and they they interviewed an expert on. Um, uh, the region who I think uh, was uh, uh, a former administrator in Niger. And he talked about uh, over the last 50 years, the swing back and forth between democracy and military control. And uh, what you have to understand about the Sahel region and it's S-A-H-E-L, this part of this region of Africa is called the Sahel region. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's an economically challenged region. Okay, mm-hmm. so it has a lot of developing states, and so what that means is um, the infrastructure needs to be needs to be developed. Uh, there's the population is very high. The education level is very low. Um, so the, there's a lot that needs to be done. The poverty rate is also very high. So when you bring all those conditions together. Um, the the conditions are very ripe for people to be oppressed and for corruption to be very high. And, and over time, um, when you try to insert the democratic process in those conditions, when the democratic process doesn't, when, when it takes hold and all of those conditions are not rectified immediately, well, then it's it, those conditions make it such that the military can step in and say, see, we told you democracy mm-hmm. doesn't work. So mm-hmm. autocratic rule, we're just going to reassert that and take control of the country. And that's what happens. And it's this seesaw back and forth over and over and over again. And that's what we're seeing in, in Niger. That and is exactly the, what happened. But isn't one of the interesting things about this this particular instance is that within that region, uh, I guess the, the, that swath of Africa from coast to coast is all led by military regimes, except for until recently Niger itself, which had been a democratically uh, elected leadership for the past seven, six or seven years, if I'm not mistaken. And they had shown signs of of things trending upwards in terms of a economic growth and things like that. Um, so that well, makes me. That and, and Ron, you're you're absolutely correct. Yeah, the democratic process had taken hold. Um, economic growth was in place, and economic progress was being made. But what wasn't happening at the same rate as economic growth was the decline in poverty. Mm-hmm. It was the segment of the population that was actually um, in poverty. It wasn't going down as fast as the economic growth. So. For example, when you have a very large population and say 60% of the population is living in poverty, well, if you take 60% of the population and you reduce it to 50% of the population living in poverty, well, only only 10% has seen a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's still 50% living in poverty. And so to the to the people living in the country, it doesn't look like there's been a change. Right. So and that's and and those are the conditions and that's still ripe for the military to step in and and take over. And that's and unfortunately, that's the process. That is that is what has happened in um, Niger. Now, uh, here is where it is important to understand what ECOWAS is. Mm -hmm. So ECOWAS is very, very similar to ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And it's a. an intergovernmental organization where um, the states have come together in a region for the for the purpose of um, binding together to um, propel themselves as a region for economic growth. Um, you know, they trade together amongst themselves as a block. They lower, um, um, like for example, uh, trade barriers. They mm-hmm. they eliminate trade barriers amongst themselves. And then they go externally and trade as a block. So, for example, if, if that region wants to trade with 
um, the United States, the United States would have to trade with the entire block. Right. It increases their their buying and selling advantages, right? Yeah. Yes, their leverage. And so yeah, it's, leverage. It's, a, it's a much better deal. It's a yeah. much better deal now. And and that improves their conditions um, for trade. And so it, it's, it's a really good deal. Now, uh, well, where is ECOWAS? So if you look at a map of Africa and you go to, I, I call it the the hump. So if you, you go to the far western edge of Africa uh, and you cup your hand around the western edge of Africa uh, and you go from there to sort of the middle of the country, all of those countries there are an ECOWAS. Right, right. So, um, it, you know, I could read them for you, but um, 14, I think 14 of the 15 have access to water and the one that doesn't is Niger. Interesting. And so Niger is actually a landlocked country and it's bordered by Nigeria and uh, Benin. Ma- I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was that or Mali. I knew it was, was somewhere close. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I'd have to look at a map just to make sure I don't, I don't mm-hmm. speak, but um, I think it's also bordered by Benin. Okay. So um, to go back to your earlier question, um, what ECOWAS did, because Throughout the Sahal region over the last five decades, with this seesaw sort of mentality between autocratic rule, democracy, and coups, uh, ECOWAS said, enough is enough. We have to have stability in this region. So instead of just talking and not having and, and having sort of a tepid response to this coup, we're gonna we're gonna have a military reaction. You know, we're going to send in troops. And so they gave the junta a deadline of a week, you know, restore President Bazoom or we're going to send in troops. And the international community was like, whoa, that's shocking, because one of the general principles of international law, um, you know, is to, uh, you know, consult and use diplomacy to resolve disputes. And and the use of troops is, a, is supposed to be a last and final resort. You know that that's not your immediate go to. So that's what that's why ECOWAS's position and and press release and statement was so headline grabbing. It was significant. So um, a quick question. So okay. So is, are the the nations involved in ECOWAS? Am I correct in saying that they are the other? Um, West African states, are they all controlled by military powers or are they democratically elected? No. Okay. So it is, it's, uh, that was my question. I thought, I thought, why would anybody be surprised by nations that are controlled by military powers wanting to send in military troops to take care of a situation, but they, they are not. Uh, yeah, they are. And so, uh, so of the 15 member states, um, so you take out Niger, and um, one, two, three, um, let me see here. It is the one, two, so uh, Burkina Faso, mm-hmm. Guinea, and Mali have all suffered coups in the last yes. few years. So you take out those four, the 15, so that's 11. Okay. So the remaining 11 are uh, democratically controlled okay. uh, states within ECOWAS. Now, not all 11 are on the same page about that was my next question yeah yeah but the chair of ecowas uh is from nigeria okay and so he's the one who was pushing for sending in troops because Mm -hmm. he was he was recently elected uh to lead nigeria and Mm -hmm. nigeria is not in and of itself a very stable country so he kind of did this to sort of cement his position as leader of Nigeria. Okay. So it, that in and of itself is, is a very interesting topic, which deserves, I think, probably its own podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, at least its own scholarship. So, mm-hmm. um, yes, you, so, if you're interested in that, you have to go read about that. Okay. So yeah. beyond, beyond the uh, interest of ECOWAS and uh, the stability of Niger and the region, why, why is, why is France heavily involved and invested in the region? Why is the U.S. involved and invested in the region? And why, I didn't realize this until you talked about your earlier topic, but why was Russia involved in uh, sending sending uh, Prigozhin down there to neighboring states and speaking? Uh, speaking? So how, why are all of these other countries 
all of a sudden interested in what's happening in, in Niger when, uh, as I mentioned before we started talking, unfortunately, this sort of thing is not an uncommon in the impoverished nations in Africa. So why why is this one seeming to draw so much attention from so many big players in the international community? Well, I, I have two answers for that, and I'll deal with uh, answer number one first. Answer number one first is uh, back in the days of colonialism, this was France's colonial domain. Ah, okay. Colonized North Africa. Okay. okay. And so uh, when uh, colonialism ended and France retreated, um, it left these countries in, in disarray. Um, and so, which is why you see uh, one of the recent things that happened in Niger uh, is that the junta uh, gave an order to uh, the French diplomat to leave. Right. And I think this happened within the last 24 hours. I think he's supposed to be out by September 1st. Okay. Um, which the junta actually doesn't have the power in international law to do. So that's going to create a whole lot of complications and it may actually embolden France to get behind ECOWAS and take on a much more active role. Um, now, the second answer to your question, you said, why is Russia getting involved? Why is the United States getting involved? Why mm -hmm. is France getting involved? Mm -hmm. You haven't asked me about one country, Ryan. What is China doing in all of this? Bingo. And there's the answer right there. And everyone forgets that China initiated what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And through the Belt and Road Initiative, which was initiated, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, um, China invests mm -hmm. very heavily in mm -hmm. Africa. Uh, and it, it, it has what I like to call a modus operandi. And here's what it does. Uh, China goes into a developing country and says, what do you need? And the country says, we need roads. We need fresh water. Um, we need electricity. China says, no problem. We've got the equipment. We've got the engineering. We've got the know-how. Let us help you build it. Let us help you do it. Um, and they come together in a partnership and they help them do it. They give them the money and a loan. Um, uh, and the country can't pay it back, right? And when the country can't pay it back, China ends up with a military base. China mm -hmm. ends up with a port, right? Mm -hmm. So China ends up with its fingers um, uh, or its presence deeply embedded throughout all of these countries. It, so it ends up with a presence mm -hmm. throughout these African countries. Uh, and so as a result, other superpowers are like, whoa, 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 we can't have China all over the place. We also have to invest, right? We also have to have a presence. Mm -hmm. there. So that's why you see Russia, okay. the United States, and countries from the EU also sitting up and taking notice and sort of what we call getting in the game. Okay. Interesting. So who benefits from all of this chaos and instability? Well, it, it, if you want the, um, it, it's not, uh, I was going to say sarcastic, cynical. If you want the cynical, <laughs> okay. answer, the cynical answer is China does. Mm -hmm. Um and, and the United States does, um, it, it, you know, all the countries that invest. Um, that would be the cynical answer. Mm -hmm. Because I think it, 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 we, we don't necessarily see the developing countries benefiting to the extent that they should be benefiting mm -hmm. um, because they end up in situations like this. Well, I guess China benefits no matter what. If it, if it falls to the wayside and the... The military retains power, then China probably definitely still has their place there. Uh, if it goes back to a democratically elected regime, they mm -hmm. have they have still given that infrastructure, and there's the nation is still indebted to them either way. So I guess, right. yeah, I guess I guess I'm cynical as well. Yeah. Um, but that leads me to the second part uh, of the our coup related discussion. In that, in 2021, uh, there was a, a coup in Myanmar, mm -hmm. um, and it may have fallen by the wayside for lots of listeners attention because i think what the point that you're getting at is it did not get as much attention on the international stage as this is um can you tell me a little bit about you know what 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 the background with the, that coup in myanmar um and the differences in response uh, on the international stage and the reasons why sure so as we 
as we transition into the coup in Myanmar, I want to set up a couple of things by talking about um, how the international community reacted to the coup in Niger. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the sanctions. So um, the sanctions that were imposed as a result of the coup in Niger, all commercial transactions with Niger were suspended. All state assets in the regional central bank for Niger were, were frozen. All assets in Niger were frozen. All financial assistance going to Niger, frozen. A $51 million bond issuance that was going to Niger, frozen. It was canceled. The EU's contribution of $554 million was suspended. France suspended aid payments of $130 million. The United States suspended aid payments of $100 million. Okay, so as soon as the coup happened, Niger lost a whole lot of money and mm-hmm. access to a whole lot of money, um, which, uh, which arguably worsened conditions there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, interestingly, uh, and this was observed by a journalist named Paul Melly, Melly out of Chatham House in London, um, power that was supplied to um, Niger by Nigeria was cut as of the sanctions. Roads were blocked, so food didn't go in. Um, and any of the money that the citizens actually had uh, sort of became worthless because let's say the price of bread went up 10 times. Um, so, um, and, and, and as a result of that, public opinion sort of became divided. Do they support the coup or do they support the democratically elected government? So the, the, the actual sanctions themselves, it, we don't know whether Paul Melly uh, advanced the notion that, well, sanctions were more harmful to the, the actual citizens than they were to the junta. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's some support there for that notion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we, we've got that. Now let's look at mine. So like you said, February 1st, 2021, um, the military there uh, staged a coup and they arrested Aung San Suu Kyi uh, and the president of the country, as well as all of the civilian elected leaders. Um, and they it, this was a very violent coup. Um, they went about uh, just they went on a rampage really because the public protested the, the population protested they they held demonstrations um and there were more than 1.2 million people were displaced out of their homes um the military engaged in a series of um military raids on buildings they tortured people they raped people they lynched people um it, it's it's just been horrible the united nations has uh has identified that the military junta has engaged in war crimes and uh, genocide against their own people. Oh, uh, yeah. I, in looking up for this, I saw I had a couple like things that jumped out and it said, you know, in the two years since this, the the um, the resulting civil war, the military had arrested more than 20,000 anti-coup protesters, killed more than 3000 citizens, mm-hmm. burned over 50,000 houses and buildings all of all the while the the country's gdp fell from like an average 6% growth rate during their reform period to now a negative 18% gdp so yeah. you know badly for the economy and for the citizenry across the board yeah the economy is in crisis um right. uh crimes against humanity uh also they were hit by a cyclone this past yeah. may and the junta refused to allow any type of humanitarian aid uh, from uh, Red Cross from or anywhere. Yeah, yeah, no one, no, no one could get in. Um, didn't want any humanitarian aid from foreign countries. Now, um, prior to the the coup, Myanmar was a member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and um, as I've mentioned before, I think once on this program on the podcast, um, one of the um, um, fundamental principles of the ASEAN Charter is that ASEAN will not get involved in the internal domestic affairs of its members. 
However, Ajahn has met and they produced what's called a five-point consensus for dealing with this coup. Um, it's never been published. And it is actually reduced, it is actually produced no result. Hmm. Um, and and in researching this inactivity, Ajahn was led by Thailand at the mm -hmm. time. And as I dug into that, I found out that um, Russia, China, Singapore, India, and Thailand were all sending weapons to the junta. Mm -hmm. And only recently has the head of Ajahn changed to a different member. Interesting. And so now the Ajahn is sort of taking a different tack. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, the international community is, is now starting to uh, take a little bit more notice of mm -hmm. what's going on in Myanmar and, and rebuking uh, specifically Singapore and Thailand, because they are Ajahn members for funneling weapons to uh, the junta there in Myanmar. So um, the government in exile, what's called the National Unity Government, um, has actually started to, one, one of the things that they've been pushing for is recognition, and they've been asking to be seated at uh, different intergovernmental organizations uh, to be recognized as the true and legitimate government of um, uh, of Myanmar. And mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, uh, Timor Leste just got expelled. Myanmar, the, the junta in Myanmar, just expelled the diplomat from T of Timor Leste because Timor Leste recognized um, the national unity government at an official uh, function about two weeks ago. I okay. Think. The, the national unity government. So it was, it's really interesting. And also at the United Nations, the national unity government holds the UNC for Myanmar. Okay. Okay. But not at ASEAN. Interesting. It's an empty seat. When you watch the meetings for the ASEAN proceedings, that seat is empty for Myanmar. Hmm. And, and no international sanctions or punishments well, of any sort. The U.S. has sanctions and um, the United States has sanctions. The EU has sanctions, but no one else has sanctions. Now, go look at a map. And I, and I say this all the time. Now, <laughs> I say this all the time. Go look at a map of Myanmar and you mm -hmm. go look at the very northwest corner of Myanmar and you'll see that it shares a border with India, India, Bhutan and Bangladesh. And it's very tricky. Mm -hmm. um, so that when the coup happened, people fled from the northwest corner of Myanmar into India, into Bhutan and into Bangladesh. Well, and it also makes it very easy to funnel weapons for the junta in from that area, which is why, you know, uh, India becomes um, uh, it, it, it's just so easy to get weapons in from that mm -hmm. direction. That corridor. And so if India is not going to cooperate and honor the sanctions or impose sanctions, then the junta's all you know it's just going to have a ready source of weapons right interesting so i mean that's a pretty stark contrast between like reactions to to two similar things i guess um yeah very the, tepid response from the international community well right. and you know throughout asia so asia yeah. just has to make up its mind they're either going to accept the coup or they're not huh. well <laughs> it's it's been several years playing out so uh, i guess signs don't point to uh too much changing when you say that you know that seat for them is still empty and uh the things continue to to unfold um i guess that puts us uh geographically we're now in the asia theater yeah um that will move us over to uh, our last international topic of the day uh okay. in japan and we'll move away from coups uh, and into, into uh, environmental concerns. But like I said before, the through line still involves China. Um, so even though we're talking about Japan uh, and one of their destroyed nuclear facilities and the, the radioactive water that they're releasing into the ocean, um, China is still involved in this. And, um, and this one's unfolding, I guess, a little bit you know, more in real time. That's um, but China has started to have some strong opinions about the situation in Japan as well as other Pacific nations. So um, 
like I mentioned in the intro, um, back in 2011, there was a devastating earthquake and resulting tsunami that destroyed the nuclear power plant in Fukushima in Japan. Um, as such, water has been accumulating at the site ever since, um, and obviously is is you know radioactive in nature. And they have the country has recently started releasing that treated radioactive wastewater back into the Pacific Ocean with the UN's nuclear watchdog group stating that there will be negligible impact to people and an environment uh, to nearby nations. But obviously nearby nations are very concerned um, about the effect to their populace and to the food chain um, and everything else that this could impact. So um, basically when I ask you, you know, what's Japan's government doing about this situation? Um, how's China reacted and how have other nations responded to this? Okay. So let's, let's first start with the narrative here. Um, so when this, uh, earthquake and resulting tsunami hit, uh, the Fukushima nuclear plant, there was a meltdown and to cool down the, the meltdown, um, water was passed over to, to cool it down. Right, right. And so um, that water had to be treated. And so that's what Japan did. And they have treated that water. Now, they got to get rid of that water. And they have and by tra- that- treated that water. You mean they have tried to eliminate its radioactive levels? Is that essentially what we're saying? Well, and they, they can't eliminate it. They, instead, they have to dilute it. Okay. And that's what they've done. And they've done that in accordance with standards set by the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency and World Health Organization standards. So there's two UN commissions at work here and two sets of regulations that Japan is complying with, essentially. Um, so and this is we are now talking about a 12 year process that Japan has walked through. So they have done this, you know, in, in accordance with regulatory standards, very strict regulatory standards. Um, uh, y- you know, we talk about doing things by the book. Japan has done this by the book. And this mm-hmm. is a 12 year process. Um, so to that end, this water has been diluted. They've, they followed the procedure and the limit. Now let, let's talk about the limit. The limit that's been set is 10,000. Becquerels of tritium per liter. That's the limit. The goal by Japan was to get to 700 Becquerels per Whoa. liter. Oh, very, yeah, big difference. Much big, big difference. Yeah, my, yeah. What they achieved was 10 Becquerels per Whoa. liter. Whoa. Yeah. I think that's so. something that's. That's actually that's an interesting thing that hasn't gotten more attention or praise. That seems well, to be. Uh, uh, of course not, because. Yeah. Because instead, China has taken the narrative and run with it that radioactive, because that's exactly what you said. It's radioactive, it's radioactive, it's radioactive. Mm -hmm. And once you throw that out there, you know, your average Joe consumer, that's all they hear. Mm -hmm. You know, because they're not going to take the time and go pull the report and read it. Uh, I pulled the report and I started reading it. And I got to be honest, by the third paragraph, I, I was like, oh, my God, this is so over my head. But I mean, you know, I, I, you I powered 10, through ten, a level of ten. Yeah, you know, it makes you. I mean, if zero is the normal baseline, it makes you wonder. I mean, like throughout the world, just background radiation levels for various areas that no one would even think to look at has to be probably higher than that in some instances. Well, yeah, but the the WHO limit is what's Start, normal. Yeah, yeah, the WHO yeah. limit is what's normal in our drinking water. Right, right. Yeah, that's incredible. So they've yeah. improved upon the, the 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 normal output. Exactly, exactly. And so um so the the so we've got that. So yeah. now we've got we we understand the numbers. And so we understand those numbers. Now, so what happened this summer prior to the release of the water, uh Japan um Japan sent emissaries throughout uh, the Pacific. Uh, they sent them to the Pacific Islands Forum, which is a block of 18 nations. And I want to tell you which nations these are because it's important. I, I want to read all 18 nations. Okay. Australia, the Cook Islands, Micronesia, Fiji, French Polynesia, Kiribati, 
Nauru, New Caledonia, New Zealand, Palau, Papua New Guinea, the Marshall Islands, Samoa, the Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu, Vanuatu, and Niue. Now, if you have no sense of history, none of those islands are gonna are gonna make any sense to you. But if you were paying attention, those are the islands where the United States did a lot of its nuclear bomb testing. So they are very, very sensitive to the mm -hmm. words radioactive. Mm -hmm. So when China starts spouting off, hey, radioactive, and we're Japan's about to release radioactive things into the water, of course those nations are going to flip out and be very, very hostile and angry about you know, releasing radioactive water into the shipping lanes, into the, the sea lanes and water mm -hmm. because they're seagoing and, and nations, they fish, right? Mm -hmm. One of the major things that they fish for is tuna. Uh, it's a big product there. So they make their livelihood off of fishing and tourism. They don't want the waters to be contaminated with Right, right. With your radioactive things, their their tourism industry will will go bust. Their economies will go bust. So of course they're worried about that. So China um, was was uh, stirring the pot, if you will, before Japan sent representatives out to those nations. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh -huh. um, and so, um, but Prime Minister of the Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, who is the head of the Pacific Islands Forums, he released a statement that cited the science. And it said it's this supports Japan's decision. The IAEA has reviewed, reviewed and approved it. If this complies with international standards, mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's let's move on. All right. Let's move on. Um, now, uh, I think the leader of Fiji also pointed to a, a treaty. It's called the Pacific Nuclear Free Zone mm -hmm. that was passed in 1985. And that treaty says, you know, you are not allowed to dump radioactive materials in the sea. Well, the release of water by Japan actually does not violate this treaty. Um, and the Fiji Prime Minister, Savet Vini Rabuka, called any connection between the release of water by Japan and this nuclear weapons testing uh, or dumping of radioactive materials is nothing more than fear-mongering. Okay. So you've, you've got really the people who have read the report and who understand the international law. They're, they're coming out and saying, okay, there, there's no connection here. There's no connection here. Yet mm -hmm. in today's news this morning, we've got, um, incidents in China where Japanese citizens uh, are being harassed. Uh, I think rocks were thrown. Mm -hmm. um, I think you observed something uh, like eggs were thrown at some Japanese citizens. Um, and I know some civilian regulatory agencies in Japan got phone calls, harassing mm -hmm. phone calls about the release of the water. And it's it's just nothing more of a, of a horrible narrative being, you know, executed by China on this that just has no place on this issue. Right. And I saw that last week, last Thursday, the Chinese government announced it was going to immediately suspend all aquatic imports from Japan because of this so-called. Right. Without without any testing. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yep. With, with, with no proof of any type of radioactive, uh, you know, indicia in the mm -hmm. fish or any type of harmful bacteria, nothing. So it's just politics and a, a way to destabilize the reputation of a potential... I don't want to say enemy, but potential uh, competitor on many levels, I guess you'd say, or friend of an enemy. Sure, exactly. So exactly. what what's what's happening now? What is Japan doing, or that how are they reacted to to a lot of this? Well, the you know we have to watch um, mm -hmm. the. I think the embargo on the seafood is very new. And I, I just saw that on the news this morning. So I mm -hmm. haven't seen a response yet from Japan. We'll have to watch that and see what happens over the next few days. Um, um, one of the um, courses that I teach here at the University of Memphis School of Law is international economic and trade law. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my response there would be, hey, Japan, go find another source for your goods. Right, right, you know, right, right. Go find yeah. another source. So don't be so dependent on China. But, you know, the, the problem there is you have more than a billion people in China. Mm -hmm. That's a huge market. And so it's yes. very hard to replace that as a source. Interesting. 
Well, so this one's still playing out. Um, how has the has the U.S. weighed in on this at all? Um, aside from, I've seen several, you know, uh, several pieces where experts from American base, either academics or scientific community, have weighed in, and it seems like what you've said. Um, I was a little surprised. It seems like some of them are weighing in without having read some of the research. Well, there's always those. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's always those. It depends on which end of the spectrum you're going to go to for mm-hmm. uh, the opinion. There's there's always those folks. But um, where you have uh, people who are speaking on the issue who have read the reports and who understand um, what the criteria are for measurement, then they're going to basically say, yeah, this is this. It's not radioactive water. It's mm-hmm. diluted. It meets it exceeds the criteria for safety. Uh, and nothing should be harmed. And and Japan has not halted the release of the treated water, correct? No, no, okay, no, because it's a it, it's a storage issue for them, right? Um, yeah, it has to go somewhere. It right? has to and, go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And and um, they have taken so many measures on every level with the Fukushima disaster. It is only they have only started to let their residents for that area back into the area within the last year. Interesting. Okay. Well, this, this is, uh, we, I think we may need to do another international related, uh, podcast about positive things. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and there, there are a lot, Ryan, I can tell you that, um, yeah. as, as the professor who teaches, uh, public international law and the other international trade law course, we, I just taught public international law in the summer to uh, 17 students who had a, a fantastic time. It was a great course. Um, and I'm looking forward to teaching international trade law in the spring. Um, we, we, the students here who, who take those courses, they are very excited. We cover a lot of material. Uh, and so externally, if you're thinking about um, the University of Memphis School of Law, uh, we have those courses and, and you should come. Come Can take I, them. I'll- I want to touch on a related item because I sat in on a class of yours one day and this, this podcast makes me think of, of this specifically. And I don't know if you do this in all of your courses or if it was just in this one, I think it was an international, you know, trade, trade law related class. I sat in, but you, I'm going to, I'm not going to summarize this correctly, but you, you ask your students to pay attention to the news items of the day or the week uh, Mm -hmm. leading up to the class. And then, you you then come in with prepared items um you know like these are the top news items that that have come about how it out of these relate or can you i thought it was a really cool um way to way to kind of get your students involved outside of the textbook into um how what they're learning applies to international international issues can Will you kind of like for any prospective students that are listening, talk about like that approach that you use? Because I'm a, a lay person that sat through that. And I felt like I left that one class kind of like understanding the full circle of how it all related. It was an interesting way to teach it. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I will talk about that because that's actually one of my favorite ways to engage students. With, I thought it was great. Um, yeah. With the material and the doctrines in international law. Uh, and it's it's very simple. In the course, um, the students are charged with uh, going to the international uh, news sites. And I tell them, when you come to class, I want you to have one or two news stories that you think relate to uh, the topics that we're covering that week in the casebook. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if it's the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, I want you to come in with topics that you think relate to the law of the sea. Mm-hmm. And we will then talk about those topics um, in current events. And we will also, the students have to explain, well, how does that relate to the law of the sea? Mm-hmm. Um, I, thought it, so, I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, back in the summer, there was the issue of uh, the immigrants on the boat off the coast of, was it Greece? I think it was I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we were talking about the law of the sea. And where the boat capsized, um, and who had jurisdiction? Well, it wasn't in anyone's territorial waters; it was in international waters, and it became a humanitarian effort to rescue them. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's how it related to the law of the sea. And you seem to, at least in the one that I said, and you seem to bring try to bring in one topic that might be totally missed by everybody else. 
from like the top, you know, news sites that, you know, you may not have heard of this one. You explain it and then in real time have them figure out how what they're studying relates to that case, which I thought was a cool way of keeping people more informed about things going on in the world that they wouldn't normally know about, but also applying the stuff that you're teaching in real time. Well, yeah, and that's the that's the fun part of being the professor. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, knowing also where we're going in the next yeah. two units. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's my job to sort of segue us in. Um, and that that's the fun part for me. That's I why I like so. teaching the international law courses. Well, folks that are listening to this, if you are looking to take one of Professor Gibson's classes, maybe this will steer you that direction because I thought it was really cool and interesting and um, always interesting to have you on the show. So thanks again for um, covering a really wide range of topics um, with, uh, I didn't expect China to be the through line that came through all of them. So um, (laughs) a lot of uh, fingers and a lot of different pies, um, uh, if you will. So, well, thanks again. And um, I know we'll have you on again uh, to uh, maybe follow up on some of these or talk about more international related or aviation related matters. Um, there's always stuff going on and I hope people have learned a lot, uh, by listening and at the very least, maybe, uh, some of these have spurred you on to kind of learn a little bit more about the issues, uh, on your own as well. So, uh, Professor Gibson, thanks as always. And I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Great.